If you want to use your uh, church Bible, you're going to need to know your scriptures because we're jumping about. We're in Galatians, we're in 1 John, and we're in Philippians. You might just want to watch it on the screen. But I'll give you the first reference, which is page 1172. I won't bother with the rest. Okay. Galatians 5, verses 22 to 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, 1 John 4, verses 7 to 12. Dear friends, let us love one another. Let me say that again. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And the last reading, Philippians 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul is speaking, saying, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Lovely words from the living word of God. Amen. So I, I know that I've told some of you um, about a lady I knew growing up uh, who we used to call in um, my home church at the time, Pray For Me Annie. Um, we call her Pray For Me Annie because uh, every time you saw her, literally every time you saw her in church, she'd say, you will pray for me, won't you? You will pray for me. And we'd always say yes. And, well, to our shame, sometimes I think we'd remember. But that's why we call her Pray For Me Annie. Um, Annie was a legend amongst the, the youth in the church uh, because she was certainly a, a rough diamond. She was different to almost everybody else in the congregation. Um, she was a brilliant pianist. She'd uh, come up apparently playing the piano in pubs, and she's a brilliant kind of honky-tonk-style pianist. She, um, she had a very strong, uh, honest, truth-telling streak. I remember one occasion uh, in a prayer meeting, one man was pray, used to pray, used to pray lovely prayers, but quite long prayers. And on this one occasion, he got to about the 10-minute mark, and this voice from the back of the prayer meeting said, Ah, shut up! Uh, so that's why she was a legend amongst the youth. But as I say, she was very different to a lot of the people in the congregation. She had a hard life. Um, that much was obvious. And I've often found myself thinking over the years, since my teens, and when she comes to mind, why on earth... I, because I'm not sure if she was a Christian or not. I, th I think maybe she was. 
I hope she came to know Jesus. But certainly, given how different she was compared to most of the people in the church, I've thought, why on earth did she come along to that church? Why did she keep coming? The Lord knows, and I'm speculating here, but I think I'm on fairly safe ground, that amongst the reasons that she came were that she experienced love and she saw joy from so many of the people in that church. Because that's what I remember seeing as I grew up. Love and joy. And I'm sure those are amongst the things that drew Pray For Me Annie to that church and kept her going month after month, year after year. Which is a good reminder for us as we start diving into the fruit of the Spirit in more detail as to why we should want to bear this fruit that we thought about in overall picture last week. Why is it we should want to show love, joy, peace, forbearance, etc.? Well, above all, we should want to bear this fruit for God's glory. The God who has loved us and saved us, when we show this fruit of the Spirit in our lives, it glorifies Him. But also, as we're going to see this morning, actually, especially when we look at love, when we bear this fruit, it gives us assurance. And it brings us joy because, as we're going to see, the fruit of the Spirit as it grows in a Christian's life is proof of life. It shows that you're a Christian because you can't really bear this fruit without God, the Holy Spirit at work. It's a supernatural fruit. It's not a natural fruit. So God's glory and our assurance, but also, and this brings me back to pray for me, Annie, that when we show this fruit of the Spirit in our lives, there's a winsomeness to it. There's an attractiveness, a loveliness to it. The world notices and the world is drawn or, well, sometimes repulsed actually when they see Jesus in us, but the world always sees it. You can't bear this fruit and and it doesn't show. As we're going to see shortly, Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples and speaking of love, said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples when you love one another. It shows when we bear the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit isn't secret. It's always shown up as fake eventually when you're faking it. I know I said last week, I think up to a point, and for a certain length of time, you can fake the fruit of the Spirit, but you can only do it up to a point and only for a certain length of time. It becomes obvious after a while. And the thing is, when you show the real fruit of the Spirit, it'll show, it'll be obvious, and it will last. This is why we want to bear the fruit. God's glory, our assurance, and winsomeness. We want the world to see Jesus in us. And when you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you are becoming like Jesus. How do we bear this fruit? We talked about it last week. Just a quick reminder. The key is there in in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk with God, the Holy Spirit. Talk to Him. Listen to Him. Do life with him and he will bear this fruit in you. It's his fruit. But remember, as we start going into the fruit in more detail, that we do our part. The fruit comes from him. Only he can produce it. But we, if you like, have got to do our part in cultivation, in looking after the fruit as it grows, in preparing the soil of our lives, in letting the word do its work, in clearing out the weeds of sin. And as we'll see in a bit, the the weeds of false thinking. There's kind of a synergy. There's a partnership as the fruit of the Spirit grows in our lives. It's not an equal partnership. He is God. And without him, there would be no fruit. But we do play a part by his grace. 
And remember what we said last week, when you're looking at this fruit now, when we're thinking about love and we're thinking about joy, if you start seeing like me that there's not as much love and not as much joy in your Christian walk as you would want, don't just try harder because it doesn't work. And that's how you slip into legalism. No, when you see the lack, turn to him and walk with him and ask him, Holy Spirit, please be growing this in me as I do my part. So that's by way of preamble. Be thinking about Pray For Me Annie as we work our way through. Be thinking about the attractiveness or otherwise of our lives as we claim to follow Christ. And let's start looking at them in more detail as we start to look at love. Incidentally, I've got lots of subheadings, lots of references this morning. I figured if I put them up on the screen, it would finish Emir off and probably kill you and you'd lose concentration. So if you're on the church WhatsApp group, the official group, I'm going to send out the basic structure and all the references now. So you've got the structure there if you want it. Uh, You can read up on it later on if you want, or if you want to not look at it at all, that's absolutely fine. If you haven't got the church WhatsApp group, look over someone's shoulder, or as Steve said, let me know later and I can make sure you put on the group. But there you go. I've just sent out the structure and the references, because there's going to be a lot of references, because we have to jump around Scripture as we look at these things, because what we've got there in Galatians 5 is this wonderful but very simple list, and we need to look at the rest of Scripture to see what the list means. Love is the first part of the fruit of the Spirit that's named. Everyone we know loves something or someone. I I think we can say, can't we? Every human being who's ever lived, surely, has loved something or someone. Some people we know who don't follow Jesus uh, love very well and very warmly. And we've been grateful for that over the years. But this love that's the fruit of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit puts in a believer in Jesus and grows in that believer. It's supernatural and it's distinctive. And unlike most loves, you know, your love for your kids, hopefully, your love for your husband and wife, hopefully, if you're married, your love for your family, your love for your your BFF. Um, Those loves, they're, they're quite logical, aren't they? But this love isn't logical in a lot of ways. This love that the Christian is called to is is counterintuitive. It leads people to love in a way that goes beyond sense. So how do we define it then biblically? What can we say about it? A few things to say about it and then a bit more detail as to exactly what it is. One of the first things we have to say about it is it's the greatest of Christian virtues. It's there at the start of the list that Paul gives the Galatians. I don't think you can read too much into the order of the fruit of the Spirit here, generally, but I think the fact that love comes first is no coincidence because of all of them, it seems to be, if you have to prioritize, the most important. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians, that great love passage gets read so often at weddings, which is lovely but also a bit ironic because it's about conflict in the church. But Paul, as he's speaking to the Corinthians, speaks of love that they need to have, that they need to show. And he talks about faith, hope, and love, the three great Christian virtues. And he says, the greatest of these is love. A little bit earlier in Galatians chapter 5, Paul has made the point that love is basically the summary of the whole Old Covenant law. It's the greatest of the Christian virtues in the sense that it seems to sum up and bind together all the other virtues. All the other virtues seem to flow from this 
fruit of love. Paul said to the Colossians, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Joshua and Fionn, that sound familiar? Yeah, that came up at your wedding. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together. All the other things that a Christian is meant to show flow from love. But it's no human invention. So it's the greatest of Christian virtues. But the next thing we see about love is its source is the triune God who is love. Um, Those are some awesome words that Clive read to us from 1 John 4, weren't they? But listen particularly to verses 8 and 16. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And then verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, God in them. You could almost call this first letter of John the love epistle because he's always talking about love and how it's an evidence of the fact that someone's a Christian, an assurance to the Christian that they really do belong to God. But he says as he's unpacking this that God is love. It is an essential part of God's being that he is love. And what that means is when you love, you're doing something that has eternally been done. Since before there was a creation, since before there were human beings, there has been love. Not as this abstract entity, but because God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been loving each other forever, before the ages were. Love is ancient. Well, actually, love isn't ancient because you've got to be, you've got to have a beginning to be ancient and old, haven't you? And love doesn't have a beginning because God doesn't have a beginning. God is love. No other faith can say God is love, and it makes sense because it's only because we believe in a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who've always been loving each other that we can say God is love. And the love that we have as Christians, the love we've received as Christians, and the love we are then meant to show as Christians is this eternal love. In fact, when we love with this love, we are making visible the invisible God. John also says in chapter 4 of his first letter there, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And listen to this, his love is made complete in us. It's almost a sense in which God wants us to love with his love, otherwise his love wouldn't be complete. I mean, course it's complete he's God and he's perfect and he's unchanging but he he wanted to share this love with with us and when we love like this it's a demonstration of the invisible God it can sound corny can't it that you know people God people can see God in us if we love one another but it's actually literally true when we love with this love that we're unpacking the world will see God in us Now, sometimes they'll recoil against that in disgust, and sometimes they'll be drawn, like pray for me, Annie. This is why we're called to bear this fruit of love, and it comes from the triune God who is the source of love. But we aren't left to puzzle out what the details of this love looks like, because, of course, the Bible is God's love letter to us. It's shot through from start to finish with his love, and that love culminates, of course, in Jesus. This love is seen supremely in Jesus. We, as we travel through the Bible, we see God's love for creation. 
we see God's love for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but we see the ultimate revelation, the, the perfect picture, the full picture of what God's eternal triune love looks like when we see Jesus. When you turn over the page to your New Testament, from Malachi to Matthew, and you start reading about the life of the carpenter of Nazareth, you see the perfect example of the love of God. Back in 1 John again, but chapter 3 this time, we hear him say this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's radical sacrificial love, isn't it? We're meant to show it because we see that Jesus laid down his life for us. That's how much he loved you, Christian. And then back in chapter 4 of that letter, we hear this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. So in other words, our love didn't start with us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the reason, Christian, that you know what love is and the reason you can show love is that God, the eternal son who was rich, became poor for you. He came from heaven to this sin-sick planet for you. He walked, he wept, he healed, he washed his disciples' feet, he sweat blood in the garden because he was so stressed looking forward ahead to the sin that he was going to bear and then he died on the cross to take your sin and to take your shame so you don't need to feel any anymore that is how we know what the love of God is it's the greatest Christian virtue it's got its source in the triune God and it is seen supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ and then we're not just meant to see it we're meant to model it that's the next thing this divine love is our model God's love in Jesus is not only what we've received when we came to faith and were saved and forgiven, but it's then a model, an example to be imitated. Because of the way that God in Jesus has loved us, we are then empowered, enabled to show this love, and we are meant to show it. Think about so many of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. They are fruit that the Holy Spirit is going to grow in us and it's ultimately his work and they are also things we're commanded to do and that's not a contradiction because there's this synergy between us and the Holy Spirit right he bears the fruit in us and it's ultimately his work and yet we're commanded by his strength and power to do it in John's gospel John recorded Jesus saying this a new command I give you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, if you're a church person, you probably know those words well, and that can be dangerous because you skip over the power of those words and how scary and impossible actually those words are without the Holy Spirit. As I have loved you, so in that way, you must love one another. Or, surprise, surprise, back in 1 John chapter 4 again. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See the picture? 
this greatest Christian virtue that is the, the love of the triune God shown supremely in Jesus. The love that saved us, that rescued us, that has given us a hope of heaven and taken away the fear of hell. This love is then our model that we're meant to emulate. And you can only do that by Holy Spirit power, can't you? And this love we're talking about is also then proof of life, like I said at the start. When we love just as he loves us, it shows that we belong to Jesus. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. This love, when we show it, not natural love, not the love that everybody in the world shows for people they love and are kind to them. No, this love, when you show this love, it shows that you belong to Jesus. It's proof that you belong to Jesus. It reassures me when I see even only maybe little glimpses of it, but I see it in my life. I'll finish with 1 John 4 eventually, but a few more verses from that wonderful letter. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. He doesn't muck around, John, does he? Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. He's going as far as to say, if you don't show this love at all, you need to ask if you belong to Jesus. It's evidence that we are truly his. And what does it actually look like? Well, we've started to see, but let's dig down a little bit deeper before we get to joy. What did Annie see? Can we break this love down anymore? As we look at Jesus and his life and his ministry and his cross, the answer is yes. We said that the supreme example of this love is Jesus' death on the cross. That's the model of our love. What is that love like, though? So how does that translate into our Christian lives? What is the love of Jesus like? What did it look like in his ministry as he healed and ministered and preached and then died on the cross for us? Well, it looks like love for the unlovely, doesn't it? Paul said to the Romans, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This means that when Jesus died on that cross, 2,000 years ago, he looked ahead in time and he saw Matt Bounds and he knew that Matt Bounds was going to be born a sinner, a sinner who rejected God and hated God and didn't want God in his life, even though he was born into a nice Christian home. And knowing that that would be my heart and my attitude, he went to the cross for me and hung there and bore my sin and bore my shame. That's what love for the unlovely looks like. Trouble is, sometimes I think for nice middle-class Cardiff Christians, we listen to the lie that we're basically nice. But actually what we are is enemies of God, objects of wrath, Paul says to the Ephesians. We're enemies of God. But the good news is, what does Jesus say about God's enemies? You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what the love of Jesus looks like in our lives. Love for the unlovely and even for our enemies. If God loved objects of his wrath, God loved God deniers, God loved church persecutors like Paul, God loved God killers because he loved those who crucified his son. If God loved that way, then we have to love our enemies. 
So who is our unlovely person that we're being called to love? Who is our enemy? Do we seek to love not just fellow believers, but fellow believers who are hard to love? There you go. I said it. Some Christians are hard to love. We're sinners, aren't we? Rubbing up in close relationship with each other in the church. That's bound to happen. Do we love not only though fellow believers who are hard to love, but that tough neighbor, that harsh colleague, that pupil who we really don't like, who gives us a hard time and really doesn't like us? How on earth do you love someone like that? You can't. But for the Holy Spirit at work in your life, but for the fruit of the Spirit. This love is love for the unlovely. It's sacrificial love. It's self-giving love. It costs to love like this. It costs Jesus, so it'll cost us to love this way. It's a love that thinks of the other person before I think of myself. Put it another way, it's a redemptive love. Jesus so loved us, he wanted us to be saved, rescued, forgiven. Isn't this how we're meant to love other people? We want to see them saved. We want to see them rescued. We want to see them forgiven. This is why a church that is loving or seems loving and welcoming and doesn't have a desire to share the gospel at all isn't actually a loving church. Because this love is redemptive love. This love is also a love that seeks to forgive, will do anything it can to make sure there's forgiveness. So the question is, do we love each other enough to forgive? I'm talking about one another now, particularly in the church. Yes, our neighbors who don't know Christ, but what about other Christians in the church? Do we truly love them enough to forgive? And sometimes the closer a person is to you, when they've hurt you, the harder it is to forgive them. But Jesus says, no, you're loving now with my love, not natural love. Don't look for justice. Don't look for recompense. Don't look for reform before you love that person. Love that person. Yes, that will cost because this love costs. But the wonderful thing is when we're loving like this, we are being so like Jesus. To the Ephesians, Paul said, be kind and compassionate to one another Forgiving each other just as in Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. That's what this love looks like. It's also a love, not just of the heart, but of the hands. This is a practical love. A sight of Christ's cross stirs our affections for the unlovely. It's not just dutiful action without emotion. Paul's Peter said to his readers, Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so you have sincere love for each other, love each other deeply from the heart. And Paul said to the Romans, be devoted to one another in love. See, we can paint this caricature sometimes that in order to love this way, in order to love the way Jesus loves, I've just got to exercise my will. And even though I don't like that person, I don't like you, but I'm jolly well going to love you. That's not God's love, Christ's love for us. His love is a compassionate love. It's a devoted love. It's a a deep love. Jesus didn't feel for us from heaven and then stay put either though. It's a practical love. It has hands. It has feet. In chapter 3 of his first letter, John says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? This love steps down. It reaches out. The love the Spirit gives is balanced between feeling on the one hand and determined action on the other. So who do I love? 
Do I love anyone who is not like me? Do I love the unlovely towards me? Do I love anyone weird, smelly, antagonistic, frustrating? Is there any affection in my heart towards them? If the fruit of the Spirit has been grown in my heart, there will be. We need to ask for the Holy Spirit to grow this in us, but we also need to get to joy. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. Let's move on to joy. Now, at this point, as we move from love to joy, maybe someone's saying, oh, I don't want to think about this one. Because I, I am conscious in my conversations with, with a lot of people, actually, and my internal dialogue with myself, I'm often very conscious, and, and other Christians seem very conscious, that they, they don't seem to experience um, a strong feeling of joy a lot. Maybe that's because we are focusing too much on what natural happiness looks like. Biblical joy has similarities with it, but it's very different as well. So quickly, let me give you some things about this joy that the Holy Spirit wants to grow, grow in the Christian's heart. The first thing about it is that just like love, it has a supernatural source. Paul said to the Romans, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is something that Paul commands the Philippians to do. He says, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. But although it's something we're called to do, ultimately, like the others, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Joy has different roots to natural happiness. Joy, the biblical joy, isn't rooted in favorable and happy circumstances. So what's it rooted in? It's rooted in eternal realities. It's taking pleasure in, it's taking delight in God and his salvation. It's being glad in God for all that he has done and all that he is doing and all that he's going to do in us. Listen to these words from Peter again, 1 Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He's just in that, that wonderful sentence mapped out the glories of their salvation. And then he says, in all this you greatly rejoice. That's what the Christian rejoices in. What God is, what God has done, and what God is going to do in you. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Do you notice that last bit, by the way? Not only is joy different to natural happiness because it's rooted in eternal realities, but this joy can coexist with hardship. Grief in every kind of trial that Peter talks about. This joy can live with hardship. Because the, the radical root that this joy has means that a Christian, in the words of Paul to the Corinthians, can be sorrowful yet rejoicing. You think about worldly happiness, it's pretty difficult to have a natural, a strong sense of natural happiness when life is just horrible and you're suffering. In natural terms, it's, it's so difficult, isn't it, to be sad and happy at the same time. But with this joy, it's different. So this joy isn't the absence of sadness. It's something that is always there in the Christian life, even when 
circumstances are hard. Trouble is, see, I read a verse like this one I'm about to read to you in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I think, I'm not sure I've experienced joy for years when I read this. You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I think I have known a joy like that, inexpressible, glorious, overwhelming. I think I have known that. The day I came to faith, in my case, I felt that. But so often the joy that I have doesn't feel like that. Well, I think what that is, that joy that Peter talks about is the the joy that we will have on that day that we see Jesus. That at times, not often enough in my book, but at times breaks into our now, into our Christian life now. The joy we will feel when we see Jesus, that sometimes breaks in. But the anticipation of that joy is what keeps us going. And I just want to say to you this morning, Christian, if that's the standard for joy, then of course we're going to feel that we never experience joy. But biblical joy might spring up and bubble up like that sometimes, but it's, it's not just like that. It's not just about the overwhelming sense of emotion. It's not just about the, every, the feeling of everything being wonderful and every, every other worry and fear disappears. We might sometimes feel that joy and I want to feel it more and I want to pray it for myself more and I want to pray it for you more. We might sometimes experience that overwhelming, inexpressible, glorious joy. But if you're not experiencing that, it doesn't mean you don't have joy. That's what I want to say to the Christian here who's worried this morning they're not experiencing joy. This joy can coexist with other things and with hardship. I mean, Christian funerals are just a brilliant example of this. You can see a Christian family who's lost a Christian family member, and you can see they're sometimes overwhelmed with the grief, almost overwhelmed with the grief of losing that person, and yet sometimes their testimony is they're also almost overwhelmed with this upwelling of joy. How does that happen? I mean, seriously, how does that happen? Are they just psyched themselves out by believing all this stuff and so they've, they've fooled themselves into this weird emotion of joy? No, it's impossible for that to happen, but for the power of the Holy Spirit. And it does happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's joy. Joy is not having it all together. Joy is not the absence of negative experiences and negative emotions. Joy is not necessarily always a powerful emotional experience, but joy for the Christian is always there. Do you remember James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I think that word consider is really important. Consider it, count it, joy. What does that mean? It means you've got to think about your joy to cultivate the joy that the Holy Spirit has put in your heart. Think about the things that lead to joy. Consider it joy. He doesn't say to them, you're going through trials, don't worry, a point will come where you will just suddenly, automatically feel joy. He says, consider it joy. Alan Cairns in his book about the fruit of the Spirit says this, the trouble with many Christians is that they think they should experience deep spiritual joy without much spiritual thought. 
We're so used to thinking of joy as just an emotion, and it, it is an emotion and affection, yes. But because we think of it as just an emotion, then when we don't feel a strong emotion, we think we're not feeling joy. And also, we can miss the fact that we need to think to cultivate the joy of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We cultivate it by rehearsing and preaching to ourselves. You know you've got to preach to yourself, right, Christian? Don't leave it to me and Dave and the other people who preach in this church or the people you listen to online. You've got to preach to yourself. Preach what you're looking forward to and what you're going to face one day. Preach to yourself about that joy unspeakable and full of glory with nothing to spoil it that you will one day experience and then pray for the Holy Spirit to cultivate that in your life. This is where joy comes from, not from gifts, not from a powerful ministry, not from achievement, from God the Holy Spirit. As you look to what he has done in your life and what he's going to do. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples? They came back after casting out loads of demons and they, they'd done all these powerful works. And he said, don't rejoice in that. What do you say to rejoice in? Rejoice for your names are written in heaven. That's how you count it all joy. And as this happens, as we cultivate what the Spirit is growing, we aren't called to plaster on a fake smile because tears can coexist with joy. But this joy will, over time, and gradually as the Spirit grows it in us, it will show. It should show. It must show. But I do feel like I should mention here, as I draw to a close, if it's going to show then it needs to show. If you feel joy, don't hold back and feel free to show it. It might show in tears. It might show in you talking to someone about the joy you feel, but it's just showing your face too. I mean, I think what happens with some of us, some Christians, we get saved, but our face doesn't. We should show this joy, shouldn't we? And can I say a closing word to those who I mentioned at the start of this joy section who worry that they don't know joy they're conscious they don't think they experience it lots again alan cairns put it puts it very helpfully in his book he defines joy as taking pleasure and delight in god and all that god has done not primarily a powerful emotion but taking delight in all that god has done and he says this if you do take pleasure in christ that is joy begun so if you're looking inside and you think, I'm just not seeing much joy. Let me ask you, do you take pleasure in Jesus? When his name is mentioned, even if it's not in your face, does he put a smile in your soul? Maybe just a little bit. But when the name of Jesus is mentioned, it does something in you. That is joy. Now, do those things that fan it into flame and pray for God to give you more of it. And pray for me too while you're at it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just long to show in our lives this love and this joy that can only come from the Holy Spirit. Uh, we do want to experience it more, Lord. As I've been preaching about those words in Peter, that, that, but that joy unspeakable and full of glory and Lord, as I've been saying, that joy doesn't always look and feel like that. Yes, that's true. But Lord, surely all of us in this room long for a joy like that. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would 
stir up this joy within us as we look to Jesus and all that he has done for us. Give us this joy and give us this love for one another, Lord. Uh, A really deep and true affection from our hearts that also does practical, loving things for the person who is loved. Help us, Lord, to love the unlovely. Help us to live this out today, maybe, by forgiving that Christian who we've instead been holding on to bitterness against. Help us to show this love, maybe, by saying a word to someone this morning. Oh, help us, Holy Spirit, to be more like Jesus. Thank you that you will grow this fruit in us when we truly trust him. But help us, Holy Spirit, to do our part this day, this week, and every day until we see you face to face. Amen.